North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. All right, so Dr. Kuntz, we're going to do our second round here on the Okies and their move to California and getting into the idea of the history of the Central Valley. And I have to have some some fair disclosure on this then because being from California and being uh, collegiately educated, I should say edumacated, at a, <laughs> at a Northern California state school, uh, lovingly dubbed by its own student body in the 70s, Granola U., um, Sonoma State University, very few people know know where Roanair Park, California is, but I had to take a class on uh, California literature, which I, I found to be, I thought at the time it was enlightening because it was unlike any other class I'd ever had. It was taught by an African-American man who was definitely a radical leftist, and he had this wild, lazy eye that would like fly everywhere in this big white afro, and he would yell at us and do all this stuff, but uh, I... At the same time, there was a certain, I don't know, can I say Dr. David Scare element to the entire thing, which which made it very, very enlightening. It was kind of like, well, this guy's making sense. He's, he's teaching me something. Anyway, you know, that's, that's all kind of neither here nor there, except for that uh, one of the elements of the class in looking at California literature was also tying the literature to the history of the state. And a piece of the history of the state is the development of the farmland in the Central Valley, and how the farmland that was in the Central Valley is not quite the farmland that is there now with regard to something we talked about last time with the Dust Bowls, which is human culpability in not knowing what they're doing with certain types of land uh, when they use it. And so 
one of the pieces of information that I remember as a factoid from from this is that much of the Central Valley was at one time a lake, and there was a huge underground water supply that uh, they would sink these four foot or five foot deep troughs into this water supply, and the water would just kind of boil up and flood the the fields, and that this was how prior to you know, uh, what, what did you call it last time? Uh, central rotational uh, irrigation, whatever the Colorado developed. Um, prior to that, they would just kind of flood the fields. And what they did was in a short period of time, you know, 20, 30 years, uh, was they just depleted that lake. It's just yeah. gone, just absolutely gone. Um, and so I don't know if that exactly gets us anywhere near where you want to be to start the show, but that's a thought I hadn't thought of for a long time until just glancing at your notes and remembering how kind of sad I was. I guess I was I was environmentally radicalized by this class in California. You know, it was, it was, <laughs> that's what they're supposed to do, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, it also gave me a, a love for what Central California is as opposed to the rest of the state, um, that it is the Midwest, uh, you know, um, and, th- and that it has a, a small town vibe to it in a lot of places. In fact, uh, and that without it, uh, much of what people do enjoy in terms of their fruits and vegetables in the United States uh, just wouldn't wouldn't be what they are. Right. So um, from there, again, not, not a real great opening question. Well, I mean, no, no, I think I think there is a really big difference between thinking that everything that happens is man's fault and that man has control over everything. Therefore, you need to switch to only driving electric vehicles versus the idea that there is human responsibility for certain things, especially for things that are obviously visible. So, you know, I mean, I grew up in a town where we had a landfill filled with garbage from New Jersey. You know, this is how I grew up thinking about New Jersey. Maybe that was right. Maybe that was wrong, but it's visible. And then everyone in town knows that people that live near there get cancer more often or, or in stranger, scarier ways than, than maybe some other people. So some of these things are visible, right? Strip mining is visible and it's visible if your father could farm in one particular way. And now you can't because of what your father did. Mm -hmm. That is that betrayal. So in this case, probably unwitting that we talked about last week. And the Central Valley of California is important historically, but it's also important in the present because like you said, a lot of the produce and nuts, fruits, vegetables that people in the United States eat are from the Central Valley of California specifically. So it is a place that you should know something about even if you never intend to to go there or, or live there or anything like that. And Historically, it's important because it's probably the first place in America to be almost uniformly, if I can invent a verb, agribusinessized. So everywhere else in the 19th century and even the early 20th century might even be commercial farming, but it is relatively low speed and low level. And significant parts of America are still devoted to what we would think of really as practically subsistence farming. The commercial farming is going to be able to get things like, you know, cattle from Texas on railroads to be slaughtered in Omaha. That's about as complex as things get. With the growth of refrigeration and lots of other kinds of factors involving railroads, you can now get things from California to New York relatively quickly. And because it is settled intensively pretty late after the Civil War, largely, you know, California only becomes a state just before the Civil War, but the Central Valley is going to be settled relatively densely only after the Civil War. And that, that means that the things that are novelties elsewhere that just kind of change farming, machinery, railroads, they are going to define farming in the Central Valley. And the land rush here means that you can also buy up, at least at one point, large tracts contiguously. So there is something that if if an Oki was driving along uh, Route 66 west from, say, Tulsa or Oklahoma City or the Panhandle, 
and he gets into the sun, he gets near the central Valley. He's going to come up over to Hatchapi and he's going to look down the Valley and it's, it's rural, but it's not rural like anything he would have seen anywhere else because what he would have been familiar with would be small family farms. That's the normal American pattern of rural settlement. What he's going to see in the central Valley in the, the early 1930s already are just thousands of acres planted with the same crop. So you're already relying on primitive, you know, agricultural chemicals, relatively speaking, obviously not yet genetic modification, but insecticides and herbicides in order to have, you know, hundreds of acres of almond trees just planted in straight rows. And they're planted in straight rows because they've always been machine farmed. The, the exceptions to this are going to be few and far between. So this is an interesting thing about what is now called homesteading, right? Which means you have chickens and you have, I don't know, whatever in your backyard. Something to note about a time when there are lots of renters, such as the Okies are when they first get to California, or a lot of immigrants were when they first came into America's cities, is that they have backyard chickens and gardens too. That's not actually a sign that you are a, that you have tenure on the land. It's a sign that you're providing certain things for yourself, which is obviously better. Like I'm, I'm not against chickens or gardens. It's just not a sign of homesteading. <laughs> it might have certain activities in common with homesteading, but homesteading meant that you were an owner. This just means that you're providing certain things for yourself. So the Okies are going to move and they want one reason, in addition to the independence thing we talked about, that they want to get out of FSA camps or they want to get out of various migrant, you know, provision situations that different groups are bringing in for them. The communists are providing certain things in hopes that they sign up to be party members and all kinds of situations. One reason is that they want their own space because they're used to having space. Okay. But that, that doesn't, that means very little. Because this word that we've been using this week and last, Oki, is such an insult that all the way in like 2006, there was a sign of a business named Oki something or other. And the local zoning authority in California would not let it be erected because it was like erecting a sign with some other ethnic slur. Hmm. I mean, they just wouldn't let it be put. They thought it was vulgar to put up a sign with that on it. So these are people who are despised. They're not in charge of anything. They have chickens, they have gardens. They're not in charge of anything because the land is owned by big landowners. And that is probably the the first thing to know about the Central Valley is that it has always been a kind of agribusiness showplace. It's at the forefront now of developments in robotics in farming in order to accommodate a lack of labor, but it has always been this kind of a place. So yeah, it's rural, but in the way that the land is worked and planted, it is alien really to anything that the Okies would have experienced before that, or or probably anybody else that was working in those fields. It really makes me think of this semi-psychotic, dystopic, cosmic horror idea that that I toy with from time to time, which is that whatever uh, the the ancient native peoples of America were worshiping by cutting heads off that kind of got put to an end for a while, um, just took up semi-local, you know, illocal residence in California and waited and now has taken over the spirituality of the entire continent by expressing its uh, its engineering feats, its, its creative uh wicked power of of magics uh and all this is to say like god what on earth did california not start that is doing everything now uh because it is you know it's like the foundation of everything for this country uh and as much as you've done a lot of work to show how so much of what goes on in america is a matter of the yankee it's a matter of the northeasterner and uh, a certain puritanical drive to regardless of what you actually believe believe everyone else should Mm -hmm. believe it too but now, California has uh, come at it from a, a, a different place, and I think it, at the very yeah. least is competing for 
um, the the seat of the pantheon of gods uh, is is out of California. <laughs> well, if it makes you feel better, California is so obviously Yankee as late as the 1930s that the Okies are immediately identifiable by their accents. And the Southern Baptist Convention cannot openly start new churches, even though their people are, are living there and moving there in large numbers because of an agreement with what was then called the Northern Baptists, what is now called the American Baptist Church USA, that California is Northern Baptist territory. It's also Northern Methodist territory. So if it makes you feel better, California is the, is the last, uh, the last bastion of the Yankee, I suppose, well, on the it, continent. It doesn't make me feel um, better. In this way. So you don't, you don't have to them. Maybe they're just two faces of the same God, if you want to do it yeah, that way. That's it. Just, there was a certain but, creative um, streak that, that then expressed itself. That, yeah. You know? <laughs> I think that what's, what's happening there is that in the Yankees, you get a people group who are unusually energetic and unusually mobile. And they're not mobile in the sense that a migrant is mobile and then he is, you know, then he rents in a new place like the Okies. They're mobile in the sense that they're moving to conquer. So a group that is very definitely very Yankee, in fact, has consecrated various places in upstate New York is the Mormons. So that's a good study in Yankees as a group in that they achieve what they want to do and then kind of impose the way that they are on the territory that they continue to control. The difference is that in Utah, they maintained their group identity, especially because it's a religious identity. Whereas in Northern California or, you know, the North Pacific Northwest or lots of other places, they did not maintain a group identity and often didn't maintain a presence uh, after a certain point. And that, that, that is really true for the Midwest where, you know, Minneapolis was called the Boston of the, of the West at one point because of how Yankee it was. So they, they are a particularly important people group to know about for the history of America. And they're going to be the vastly majority landowners in the central Valley when the Okies get there from a completely different part of America. This, this brings me back to like this whole white as a contract that doesn't exist thing. Um, because it's so clear that the the white that we have in say Lutheran circles um, just isn't doesn't have in their gene pool this kind of conquer anything and and impress your will on anybody. Uh, it's 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 just so far away from it. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. Yeah. It's not white is valuable in force at certain levels of analysis. It's not valuable for most forms of analysis, and it. It doesn't tell you why, for example, you have a town green or you don't have a town green at the center of your small town. One tells you Yankees were there. One tells you Yankees were not there. So these kinds of things are, you know, I think, and that, that book that I referenced last week, the Yankee Exodus book, is really helpful in this way because he'll track every state outside of New England in order to tell you, I mean, not the South, obviously, because they didn't settle there, but, you know, the Midwest, the Rocky Mountains, the West in order to tell you where different things came from. And you'll find this is where this university came from. And this is who was in charge in San Francisco and everything. So it is does. The, yeah, go ahead. Is the, I'm shifting topics a little bit, but, but still connected is, is the incapacity of Lutherans in America to convert anybody related to our lack of conquering in the sociopolitical climate that we inhabit? I think there is definitely there is definitely uh, the reason I'm struggling is because I, I don't, I don't know where all of this comes from. Here are some things I can observe. One is a certain almost like out immigrant outsider attitude towards the United States where America seems kind of weird or if, if, especially in the part of the clergy, if our people do things that are very normal for white Protestant Americans to do, like be really invested in the 4th of July, that's kind of weird to the clergy for reasons that are partly theological and partly just sort of cultural. Like we don't talk about why it's weird. We just say that it's weird or we are outsiders to it or something. 
And some of that I think is theologically determined. And some of that is just group habit. You can see going all the way back. Some of it too, is this, this kind of like Lutheran reflex, which is very much an immigrant. This is such an immigrant reflex. Like Jews do this. Italians will do this, which is they're not really in charge of things. So they'll tell you about the most famous Jew who was ever in the U S Navy or something. (laughs) His name is Uriah Levy Phillips, you know, war of 1812. So that's fine. But like, who cares? You know, like that is immigrant groups are often more interested in themselves in a way that is really, when you look at it, really, they don't matter that much rather than in general things going on with the general population. So Lutherans in Germany don't have to talk about the most famous Lutheran in German political history, right? Because they're not outsiders to the group. Lutherans in America struggle to even have people involved in political history, let alone, you know, so that's also why on the show, I like, I've never done a show on Peter Muhlenberg. Okay. He sort of matters for some early American political history. His brother, Frederick, is the first speaker of the house. But to do it as like, here's a famous Lutheran, that it, it's just such a, I mean, it, it just says like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm just happy that they let me in the room, which is not the way that you do things when you actually want to affect the future. When you think you can and you think yeah, that you right. have is worth doing right. it for. So right. like we want to think that our reason for abstaining from Fourth of July church services is theological. But and and I actually I get it, too. Like I, I the flags aren't in the sanctuary at St. Paul Rockford. But but like who cares at a certain point, too, yes. if you're not going to advance your own flag? And we don't have one. We We don't have one. We don't have one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So this is very different from, I mean, and I don't, and the reason I was hesitating is because I don't, I don't want to be disdainful or something. I just, I mean, I have to be, I don't share these. These are not my impulses. They're just not my, my impulses. So I don't think like, how can I be the most, how can I, how can I write the most interesting Lutheran book? I just want to write an interesting book. You see the difference, right? Like, Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's the deal. And it's, I mean, one of the things here is that both Yankees, but also Okies, Okies being predominantly of kind of Appalachian or Southern, let's say, descent, if you go farther back in American history, they are not outsiders to America. And so they also, when they, for instance, move to California, the Okies are actually shocked by how they are treated as outsiders by other whites who are probably northerners or maybe even midwesterners maybe northerners of you know going farther back because america like you said like this this denomination white has some significance it has certainly has legal significance in american history but it doesn't have everyday significance especially when whites are dealing with each other and that's really clear with immigrant groups right so people say irish catholic or they'll say They'll say Russian Orthodox or something. And those things matter. But with Protestants, they tend not to pay as much attention when they probably should understand that's why these groups are different. So the the Okies get there and they're renters, they're whatever, and they are despised. And that is not only safe then, I think it's safe today. Like you could make fun of somebody, especially you could especially make fun of a rural Southerner. Yeah. Almost any context. America. I mean, yeah, it's just. Yeah. Everyone makes fun of it. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 always been acceptable. It's still acceptable. You can do that. So what they're going to do in response to that, I think is what's interesting. And this is what I would recommend to, if you have whatever these deep Lutheran group impulses, that's totally fine. Don't respond by trying to do your like, because that, that is, it's kind of a victim thing to be like, well, I'm not really important, but here's a Lutheran that invented the slinky or something. I mean, a Lutheran didn't invent the slinky, but you see what I'm saying? Like this, like, I, well, what would kind of matter sometimes, you know, don't do that. That's not what they do. So they don't respond. <laughs> they don't respond by being victims. They respond by creating their own culture and then propagating it. The parenthesis I'm going to put around everything that we're going to say in the rest of the hour is that they never get the kind of land tenure necessary to propagating that multi-generationally. So conversely, people that do get that are, for example, Italian immigrants to California. These are your people who are going to still own lots of farms in the Central Valley, 
even though in 1890, they didn't speak English because they buy up lots of land, especially in Northern California and the Central Valley. And that's where a lot of your kind of your bargain wines are going to come from. Don't they, don't they kind yeah. of hang together too, culturally again? So they're going to, they, they're going to group they, support, yeah, right? They hang together. I mean, your, your biggest bank out of the state of California, Bank of America is originally Bank of Italy. So it, yeah. it, what gets me this, I'm still, I'm just going to hang on this issue because I think it is so imperative for the real purposes of the show long-term, which is to help the groups that are listening to us find ways to overcome some of these systemic hindrances to our own success um, is there, there seems to be a fear of each other that we have that say in this Italian community in the central Valley, they just don't have, right. They're not yeah. afraid of their neighbor. And for whatever reason, German Lutherans are, are afraid of German Lutherans. I mean, it's, it's I just, don't I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to, you go on this because I don't want to be like, Hey, I know what I'm, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I I'm like an immigrant to Lutheranism, well, but that's where like your objective perspective on it is, is kind of helpful. And I, I don't know what I'm doing either. All I know is, <laughs> is what I've observed, yeah. which is that, and I don't remember if this was this show or last show, but like the LCMS has been around long enough to own Coca-Cola. We, right. We've been around long enough to do that. And we've done the very opposite of that. Right. Now we are fighting for the table scraps of the collapse while the Mormons are positioned to be the next big thing in America 40 years from now. They kind of are. And, and, and they started out with so much less and so much more hardship. And then they've converted people that they that they believe, believed or, or used to believe or maybe believe on some level like that. Their their bodies are the color that they are because God hates them or they yeah, right. or they're a cursor. But that hasn't stopped them, you know, right? <laughs> Even among those groups, right? There's probably more people who live in America and came from Guatemala who are Mormon than you know live in America and originally came from Guatemala who are Lutheran, right? Even though we don't have like we don't have some kind of like doctrinal story about why they're brown, so when you think about it that way, I mean, I, I would say at least two things about this situation and, you know, the, the Catholic listeners, I don't know how you guys handle this. You have a giant international apparatus to handle. We don't actually have that problem. And I do think it is a problem. We're not necessarily globalists. Some churches are, but th there's at least two problems. One is that when you look at what you're doing as essentially an intellectual enterprise, it is really kind of inevitable that it will fracture increasingly over time. Okay. And I don't mean by this that I want to have like a headquarters in St. Louis or anywhere else. And then people send in like from, you know, from, uh, you know, Klamath Falls, they're going to write into me and be like, what should we do in Klamath Falls? And I tell them that's not how the Mormons actually function. Even everyone realizes that, delegation and, and subsidiarity are good for big groups. Okay. So the size of the group per se, and whether it operates in a centralized way, it doesn't really matter. We're talking about the survival of people having the same, you know, view of life because of their life in Christ, right. In the case of a church, but if everything is essentially an intellectual enterprise, then as soon as the guy in Klamath Falls or, you know, whatever Lake City, Florida or whatever, says one thing in a way that like weirds me out or I don't quite get it or I don't know why he's doing it, then if I'm going to operate that way, then I'm going to, I'm, I'm inevitably going to fracture because there's just no way that the guy who is living under completely different circumstances on this continent is going to do everything exactly the way that I do it. Okay. So, you know, if you want to do that, then essentially just admit that what you're really running is like a fast food franchise. Like I, like I can verify that, that the In-N-Out burgers taste the same in Colorado as in California. That's fine. But In-N-Out isn't trying to provide a whole way of life to me. It's, it's just giving me the burgers. So it, I, I think that if you, if you provide just this like modicum of this is how we do church and this is what we say, and this is what we believe. And then the way of life is coherent, but, you know, the way of life varies. The people don't all arrive on time in one place and in another place, they all arrive on time and they get dismissed from their pews in an orderly fashion by the elders. That's fine. We just have to accept those kind of variances of life. If it's an intellectual endeavor, of course we can't, because I could make it an intellectual argument. Why do you just 
just rush out of church like you're crazy. Why don't you wait for the elders who were appointed over you by God through your pastor? Why don't you wait for the elders to dismiss you, right? He is a God of order, not a God of confusion, right? You could make anything an intellectual cause for strife. You could. And if you do, then of course you can't hold the group together. I think the other thing then too, is that you have to train your group not to have certain reflexes. So the Mormons tried to train the violence reflex out of themselves, which was very apparent in say their first 30 or 40 years. They were violent. People against them were violent. It was all very violent. We would have to train out of ourselves as a group. This is my observation. A reflex of you told me to do something or you asked me to do something, so I will do the opposite. Okay. So we Lutherans, it would seem to me, have the opposite problem of Episcopalians. Episcopalians will be extremely cooperative with each other. They just don't actually agree on anything. They're kind of intellectually lazy almost in a way. We're not intellectually lazy, but we are reflexively just an irrationally uncooperative. So an example of cooperation would just be to say, look, we're all going to, it's, it doesn't have to do with whether you're going to go to hell or not, but we're just all going to, we're going to wear these vestments and do church in this way. And then people don't have to be confused when they go on vacation, whatever. Okay. Just, just an example. And just, like, that's, that's how I do the, I mean, I don't do the liturgy because it's like, I know a million things about the liturgy and I'm going to teach you how amazingly deep it is. Or I don't think anyone has ever come to faith in Jesus Christ through like a revivalist preacher. I'm, I'm doing it because we've agreed to do it because it's helpful because it's good. It doesn't have to be the be all and end all of everything. So when you, but when you make everything a cause for intellectual strife, and then also you're allowed to just be like uncooperative or enraged, like at the drop of a hat, then of course it's extremely hard for the group to hold together. And this isn't like a, I'm not like tone policing even people that support the liturgy, because the thing that I find about our group is that the dysfunction exists on both sides of any question because it's a group dysfunction. It's not a theologically specific dysfunction. Yeah. It's not systemic racism, but it's definitely systemic. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. I believe in systemic things because I, I observe them within my own group for well, sure. I mean, I think some have maybe made the case that this is uh, Luther's own ghost a little bit, uh, adopting more of his personality than say his exegesis. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if that's, yeah, that's fair possible. by itself, but it certainly, yeah, it certainly is, is there in the water a little, um, you said so many interesting things there. So that's why you're like, you started that by saying, look, I, I, I can't talk on this. And then you gave me like five things that like all, <laughs> all line up. But the non-globalist uh, assumption of of post, uh, post-state church Lutheranism is, yeah. is really an interesting piece to that. Because not to say that we need a global headquarters and that would solve everything. We need an archbishop of Luther for the entire world. And that'll fix, that's not that's not what I'm saying. But this this kind of idea of the democracy of the church, um, it doesn't exactly lead toward unification of goals. I mean, the church is not even necessarily democratic. I think it is more often in America, denominations are very bureaucratic. Hmm. It's just that the horizons of our bureaucracy are usually national, whereas the horizons of the Roman Catholic, you know, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is, is global necessarily, right. right? So those horizons mean that we, we consider certain things very differently than if we, you know, eventually like the Missouri Synod would be run by a guy from... I don't know, uh, Malawi, yeah, right. Malawi or, or Australia or, or, or potentially anywhere. Right. So now that in, in a globalized system, you can still have national assertion. So, I mean, how many popes in a row was it that, that were Italian, but, and, and this current one is, is ethnically entirely Italian. <laughs> um, he's Argentine, which matters, but, but he's Italian. So, that that horizon means it, it doesn't it doesn't even necessarily mean that the United States that they're like nationalistic. I mean, we share this in common with say the Southern Baptist Convention, which is going hard for and fighting over 
the notion of you know critical race theory, systemic racism. So it's not it doesn't even make you nationalistic. It means that American framings for things or national framings for things in the case of Finns or you know Tanzanians or Australians, national framings are going to dominate over global framings of what are perhaps the same problems, right? But but how many American Lutherans would even be aware of very similar problems in the Lutheran Church of Australia or, you know, State Church of Finland or something like that, right? So that's, I mean, that's, that, that affects us. It doesn't preserve us from compromise, but I think by contrast with the Roman Catholics, it does make change a little more imaginable because I don't have to think about a college of cardinals composed of people who are very foreign to me, perhaps, in the case where, say, you know, my nation, like I'm Catholic and my nation is very Catholic. I don't know um, Rwanda, but there's no Rwandan in the College of Cardinals. Yeah, I'm still black pill on on the future of Lutheranism so constructed. I, I just I just don't see how anything other than congregations um, have any any substance at this point. Um, they're. Uh, what would we build on is the question. And you, you can say, well, Augsburg Confession. Okay, but no, not everyone thinks that at all. In fact, uh, who knows what that is? Few. And um, that doesn't disconnect from the other important thing. You said so many important things. Another one was just the fact that it's all an intellectual enterprise. So so here we are with non-globalist aspirations. So we really don't believe it's for the world. It's just kind of for us and some of us. And then it's all about knowing it the right way, rightly known enough and making sure it's never wrong uh, as some sort of uh, highbrow, you know, theology, meaning knowledge of God, but certainly not way of life under yeah. God. Okay. Uh, I'm, yeah. I mean, I think that I do, I do not think that American denominations, including the LCMS are necessarily nationally focused in the past 50 years. And one metric of that is one that I use with the folks that I teach about church planting, which is that in the late 19th century, there are 28 churches for every 100,000 Americans. And by 2010, that's down to 11 churches per 100,000. Wow. Okay. So there's population growth, obviously, but we obviously didn't even keep up with that, let alone anything else. So I'm not sure that it's it's not, it's not a national, I don't think it's a national focus necessarily. I think it is a national framing for questions, right? So when you look at, for example, let's say starting new churches, you're going to treat all churches that would probably have mostly or entirely white people in them as the same, but we're saying Yankees and Okies aren't the same. Or you would treat all churches having black people in them as the same, but Ghanaians and Malawians aren't the same as aren't the same as black Americans. So that's, that's what I mean by framing mm. and a, 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 ch a church with a more global outlook would have very different, very globalist problems. I mean, the Vatican bank has very different problems than the Lutheran church extension fund. Right. And I don't expect them to assassinate the head of LCEF, but it also has just a different way of looking at life than a church that has a primarily national framing. The framing that is not national, but perhaps common to Lutheranism of a lot of, a lot of life, certainly of church life as an intellectual endeavor, that is also perhaps a habit of a church in a free church situation because church belonging in the United States is elective. It's ethnic for people where ethnicity and religion are combined for a really long time. So you could say German Lutheran or Irish Catholic, but those things have relatively little hold after several generations in the United States, unless you live in some kind of ethnic enclave, you know, so you say, oh, well, my county in Wisconsin has 20 LCMS churches. Okay, that's probably an ethnic enclave, right? Or, you know, I live in northern New Mexico and I have a Spanish last name. You probably live in an, in an ethnic enclave. Most of us don't. And if we're migratory, we definitely don't. So then it, it feels natural to think about religion as if it is as if it is almost an intellectual decision. Well, isn't it kind of true that um 
if you were going to try to to summarize everything that those who are in the LCMS still kind of agree on, or at least what we're fighting about on some level, is that it, it is about the the intellectual proposition that justification is by grace through faith. It's not about the, um, dare I say, experience of a justified life under the grace of a living God. It's about insisting that the reality of the philosophy of Christianity is only rightly maintained when justification is by grace through faith. I, and, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Just, just and if, 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 I think you can see a difference between what I just said. I'm not sure everyone mm-hmm. listening would 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 know, so maybe it'll be helpful for you to just redistinguish what I just said as well. I, yeah, I think an understanding of what actually afflicts individuals, but also groups at, at some sort of whatever macro level you're looking at, involves personal knowledge of them. And that is why talking about intellectual topics such as what does this person say about justification or sanctification, or what is this person's position on abortion? That is always part of a discussion with a human being because human beings have intellects. They may be more or less intelligent or more or less well-read or something, but they all have intellects and they have certain definitions of things, whether they're aware of those or not. But in addition to that, with every human being, there are also there is also a will there is a capacity to exercise that will that's stronger or weaker. There's all of these other factors with human beings, their emotions. People were horrified at how emotional the Okies were. Okay. So there's all of these factors. So to give you an example of how this can change is that if you simply don't have any personal knowledge of people, then it's very hard to sway them at all. So if we were speaking about the Okies ethnically, we would say that maybe six or seven generations earlier, their ancestors should have been Anglicans, vastly majority. If they have an English last name, or if they're of primarily English descent, they should be Anglicans. Why aren't they? Because the Anglicans didn't send hardly any priests to the new world and you couldn't ordain them here. So they lost enormous proportions of the population. Therefore, the South ends up being largely Methodist and Baptist. Okay. So when they're in Oklahoma, they're largely Baptist, almost entirely in some places. They get to California. The missionaries don't follow them fast enough. Who actually has personal knowledge of them on a deep religious level? That would be the unpaid Pentecostal preachers who live and work with them, who have daily knowledge of them. Therefore, the Central Valley ends up being way more Pentecostal than the places that the people who live in it, certainly the white people, the Okies who live in it, came from. Because with any human being, his life is only partly intellectual, and the intellectual part of it is only partly conscious. And then there's all of the rest of his life, and without personal knowledge of it, it is inevitable that you don't understand him, and that he's not listening to you. So without that personal knowledge, I don't really see how groups can resolve problems, right? Because without that personal knowledge, individuals can't even be swayed, let alone groups, you know, so it's the people who are in person with others who actually change their minds. Yeah. And so someone's going to say something like, uh, you just don't believe in the power of the word of God. And, uh, you know, if, if we just rightly distinguish law and gospel, it, it shouldn't matter. Well, I do. But I, I but think about it this way. Same time, the big the biggest evangelistic program on the radio when the Okies are migrating, I'm sure some Okies listen to this, is the Lutheran Hour with uh, Dr. Walter A. Meyer. And what he would do there is that he would put out the program and he would ask people to donate, you know, let's get this program on the air in whatever, Fresno, California. And then if someone writes in from Fresno, California and says, I'm so lonely, my husband doesn't want to go to church with me. There's all these kinds of letters you can read, especially in biographies of him. He would direct them to, you know, whatever, Pastor Mueller in Fresno, California. Go to this church. Pastor Mueller is going to help you because that change that is affected, whether it's religious specifically or intellectual more broadly, has to be accompanied by personal knowledge, which is exactly how God has actually made us to live, families, congregations, etc. So these kinds of things that are not that local personal knowledge whether we're talking about denominations or a radio program or whatever else, are all there to further the personal knowledge, right? Or they're not really useful or valuable, or they don't even need to exist. So that's how they're doing it. They're not saying, 
yes, just please keep writing in to Dr. Meyer and listening to his program, and then you're a real Christian. He did not do that at all. It wasn't, as it were, video preaching, right, today where he just simulcast the celebrity pastor. Let's try to bring it back to our topic for the day. Thank you for for humoring me there. (laughs) Um, Railroads, tractors, and water going where it doesn't want to go, I think is where we left off. Yeah. And yeah, we can, we can pick up with, with more Okies. Uh, I mean, I could talk about Bakersfield sound all, you know, I, that could be a whole show, but I don't think all the listeners are that into. I don't know if I can history. go that, that far. Yeah. And just I don't the, think the everlasting no, reality of Bakersfield is just uh, Fres- all things. Fresno is the truth of California. I learned that from that same class. It was like all roads lead to Fresno <laughs> somehow. <laughs> is that the land in the central Valley really cannot be what it is without modern farming machinery as that's developing in the 19th century, but especially without irrigation. So you're right about the flooding and what they do in order to make places that cannot be flooded habitable is to bring water down practically from Oregon, certainly from the Sierra Nevadas, and they're going to build canals. So they're going to fill a place like Bakersfield with canals in order to make it usable and habitable. A similar thing happens in Arizona And this is going to give them, because of the climate, an enormous variety of crops. That's the reason the Central Valley is so productive is because they can move water to a place where the weather is relatively nice almost the entire year. So what that's going to do is I can grow everything from grapes to cotton to peaches. And this is going to vary kind of sub-regionally. So Modesto is going to have more produce and Bakersfield is going to have more cotton but it's going to make the land enormously productive for those who own it. It's also going to create a system that is not like normal rural America, but it is like what is increasingly common in modern rural America, and that is just absolutely enormous farms. And an enormous farm is not going to be worked by some kind of you know ma and pa and their eight children. It's going to be worked by ma and pa and their eight children, and then like 200 laborers that they need to get from somewhere to pick the peaches or pick the cotton or whatever. And this is why the, the third reality of the Central Valley is the one that is really going to be the eventually demographically determinative, not just for the Central Valley, but for large parts of America. And that is that the entire world will be your potential labor pool. Mm-hmm. Immigration. Yep. And so the first people who are actually working in the Central Valley are the Chinese. So this goes back to the 1880s and 1890s when this is really first getting off the ground. And eventually you have, you have a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment. The Chinese also don't buy up land in the same way that some groups after them will. So they will eventually kind of disappear from the land by and large. They'll turn into kind of a, like a merchant class if they exist at all in that area, they will be replaced by almost simultaneously Japanese and Italians. And both Japanese and Italians throughout California will do something that the Chinese didn't do and that the Okies won't do all that successfully, which is they will move from being migrant laborers to being farmers on some scale. This will enable them to endure such that you have Japanese American populations and longstanding Italian American populations that are to one degree or another, self-conscious, right, groups in California to this day, okay? So if they can jump from being renters to being owners eventually, then this can be a, kind of a successful mid-step mid for them. But eventually, even cheaper than them will be Filipinos, and then especially, and this, so this predates the Great Depression, especially Mexicans. And they're... This is a kind of a weird point, but growers would look at both your average height and your just kind of like general ways of walking, standing and sitting of the different groups and then hire for different harvests based on the different groups. So because like they can't get white people to like move while squatting, this is just like, I don't know, not something that is done. They do not hire whites. I mean, if if you, <laughs> you can find signs, right? So no, no blacks allowed, no Irish need apply. 
there are signs like this about white people in the Central Valley for certain crops that they're like, no, we only hire Japanese or we only hire Mexicans for this crop. <laughs> the, cr the crop that, and I don't remember Grapes of Wrath well enough, but the crop that Okies are really going to flourish in is the one that they're most familiar with, which is cotton. So the Central Valley also produces most of America's highest quality cotton to this day. And Okies, once they start to flood into California, are going to be brought in, especially as cotton pickers. They don't want to stay there, but that's what they're going to do. And so most of them don't end up either owning or being in the FSA camps. They're going to end up as renters and squatters living in kind of tent camps at the behest and at the approval of the landowners, especially for cotton picking. And they have this problem that whereas Mexicans will move around from harvest to harvest to harvest, very few Okies will do that. They want to pick cotton and they want to stay there. And that's going to make them fit very awkwardly because they're used to thinking, oh, well, in the South, we're white, we're not black, so we're relatively high status. And the Central Valley status is not measured by race, it's measured by income. So there's, this is another way in which it's really a lot more like modern America than a lot of other places in the United States in the 1930s. In that caste system, they're as low status as Filipinos or Mexicans because they're just people that live on other people's land and they're actually won't move around as much as people want them to. So they present problems that other groups don't. Yeah, like a, like a high maintenance, right. uh, lowest caste. Like, yep. it's, it's yeah. the worst you could get. It's yeah. A slave yeah. who doesn't know his place. Yeah. Uh. And it, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to wind up here shortly. But this this creates among the Okies a sentiment that I think people will find familiar, especially from the moment that Trump comes down the escalator at Trump Tower, which usually doesn't it certainly doesn't get spoken in organized labor in the United States now. But it is that if you weren't bringing all of these Mexicans here, you could give us these jobs because we would not be outbid or underbid by Mexicans who will work for less money. That is that if you, you can have either a labor market that is conducive to your people, or you can have mass immigration, but you can't have both. Because the issue in the Central Valley for the growers is, of course, it really has nothing to do with race except for what they believe to be the different biological fitnesses of different groups for different crops. It has to do with who is the lowest bidder. And we'll bring as many of them here as we want. But in cases where that group doesn't fit in economically, they are not wanted. So there's a little weird anecdote from California history, which is that the chief of police in Los Angeles dispatches officers in the mid-1930s to the borders with Oregon and Arizona, okay? So the Oregon border is like close to a thousand miles from Los Angeles, but there are LA police officers at the Oregon border. So this has come up recently in the case of uh, if what happens if I live in Missouri and I need to go and I go to Illinois to get an abortion? Like what is, what is the freedom of interstate travel, okay? This was actually decided that you are free to travel between states in, I think it's Edwards v. California, because there were various forces, including the, the mayor and the chief of police in LA in the 30s that said, California is full up. We can't handle, and they weren't talking about Mexicans because those were definitely guest workers in the 30s. We can't handle Okies. <laughs> we have to stop them. They're coming here to take advantage of our generous welfare system. And at one point, you know, you could have been stopped. I don't know how legal this was, but it did stop some people. You could have been stopped by an LA police officer somewhere all the way out in the desert. And he says, no, like you're, you're an Okie, Get, go back, go back where you came from. Because the sense was that we don't, we don't all own cotton farms. So you're coming here and we have a 20% employment rate and you're just going to add to that. It's a, it's kind of a it's kind of insane to consider, but it it really did happen, and it it presages so much of what's going to happen when, especially after the '60s, guest worker programs go away, and you get permanent you kind of get permanent ongoing mass immigration in the United States because 
there are situations like this. They're just smaller scale. And California had some really weird debates in the 1930s about like, what if we gave every senior citizen $50 a month? Or what if we made sure that everyone, there's a whole campaign called the ham and eggs campaign. What if everyone had ham and eggs for breakfast every day? You know, what would that do for our population? Can we provide that? They have some of these same kind of weird, but definitely very populist inspired political arguments. And they have them because they're trying to figure out, are we supposed to provide for anyone who shows up? And if we're not, what are we supposed to do about it? And are we allowed to just kick people out or should we send them home? And the Okies prevent a very difficult test case for this because there aren't any particular legal grounds for kicking a member of one state out of another state. <laughs> as much as people might want to, I mean, you know, don't, don't California, my Colorado, don't California, my Texas, don't California, my Idaho. Mm. But why are people leaving California now? Well, they're leaving because they're looking for a better life, just like the Okies went there looking for a better life. Because they went from handing out ham and eggs to handing out crack pipes, you know, and, and it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's not going well. So, um, yeah, replacement theory and mass immigration and uh, an open border that has various states now taking a, a direct hand with their uh, National Guard in yeah. order to, well, they say they're going to try to prevent it. I, what is it, a million? Uh, 600,000, mm -hmm. I forget what the number is, immigration just this year that is from the southern border and completely mm -hmm. off the church. I mean, it, what does this do to a lot of things? Um, you also mentioned Trump coming down the uh, the escalator. I've heard that a couple corners this week. So just must be waking the rounds as, you know, to talking about uh, when he decided to run and what that language is important. But the, the most important edge of that seems to me this be the Supreme Court decision out of Wisconsin on uh, whether or not the, the election was one that was valid and with integrity and, and what that will mean going forward. So with, with just, you know, five more minutes here, um, let's, let's just talk uh, scuttlebutt. So the coming down the escalator is when he makes the speech about we need to build a wall. And the reason that that is salient is that it was kind of off the agenda of American politics, except for certain, even when they were in Congress, relatively fringe characters. So if anyone remembers Tom Tancredo, who's from Colorado, he talked a lot about immigration in the 90s and early 2000s, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't terribly serious. And the idea too, I think, usually in Coet in most people's minds, both white Americans and also non-white Americans and non-white immigrants to America, that essentially America is basically a white country, which is historically true just in a demographic sense, is just not as apparently true anymore. So we're, we're getting to a situation where it's kind of more like as if Japan, which I suppose this is something that I could imagine happening in Japan based on its current political leadership, if Japan became in certain cities, you know, mostly a Filipino country, it's going to change Japan. So Trump brought something back on the table as under discussion that simply was not on the table for discussion and didn't, I think, seem to matter to most people for how everyday life worked and what your social interactions were like and stuff like that until relatively recently, unless maybe you live in California or Arizona or something. So that's kind of what you're dealing with, right? So you go to Miami. If I wanted to run for public office in Miami, I would learn Spanish, right? Why do I have to do that? Well, I have to do it for these reasons and these reasons and these reasons. So he just brought that back on the table. The thing to understand is that even if, you know, our mass of immigrants were as they were earlier in American history, you know, most of our immigrants are from Great Britain up until I think after the Civil War. Those, those folks are coming in, they speak the language, they have a common religious heritage, blah, 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 blah. If the American population had the same levels of immigration in 1840 that it does in 2022, we, we would have had a lot of trouble having anybody care about any of our institutions because no one grew up with them. So it would be very hard to have propagated our nation as such. So that's why it's a question, but it, it's even a question when you get internal migration. So... And this goes back to the question of land and betrayal. 
did the state of California exist as just a state for people from Oklahoma potentially to live in? Or was it primarily for the people that already lived there? Because I think that when people think about land in America, they're generally thinking about its potential. How much has my home value risen recently? Or what did the house down the street just sell for? Not who lives there and what are they like? I mean, it, you know, whatever you want to say about interstate commerce or, or whatever, or reciprocity between states as to their laws, you, you can't, I think it is valid to say, like, if I lived here my whole life, should the city government care more about what I think than what, you know, this Okie that just got here thinks? And you will notice people do recognize the justice of at least the question because they do talk that way when the group that has been there is not white and there are white people coming in, right? So gentrification gets discussed in these ways. So they'll say, this community that has been here for generations, well, okay, sure. What I mean, maybe, and maybe, you know, your grandma got there in the 1950s. I, I'm not sure how many generations we need for this to be an issue of justice, but it does get brought up. I think it's an issue anytime you have change. And the reason you're having change is probably because you don't own things and the people who do own things don't care that much about you. And that's really how you realize that you live in a casino. Because if you didn't live in a casino, then people would preserve what is there, even if you yourself were not entirely capable of preserving it yourself. So, you know, I... In, in the case of the Okies, they come in somewhere where they are foreigners and they do, they do change it. I mean, <laughs> one reason that Bakersfield is reliably Republican to this day is that it was largely populated by people who weren't like the people in San Francisco. Like they just, they weren't, right? And the people that owned land there were not sufficiently numerous to overwhelm the people who originally didn't own any land there. It it kind of pushes me back into the question of uh, Lutheran globalist expansion. <laughs> Is that theology of glory? Yeah, well, <laughs> perhaps. That's no, a, that's ahead. a no, really I'm interesting just, question. No, I'm, just, I'm just messing with no, you. No, that's, that's an interesting question because, like, our whole conversation earlier. Uh, there, there is a tendency to take it sort of as a badge of honor that we can't convert anybody because it proves how right we are or something like that. <laughs> and, and I'm just not sure I buy that. Um, yeah. I certainly appreciate the distinction between uh, the various elements of the Heidelberg Disputation, but it, it does not um, of and of itself trump any kind of uh, direct understanding of Christianity as a community that lives and thrives from Scripture and yeah. that is expected to not die out in this age. Um, but uh, uh, the idea that these churches are our churches, that they belong to us, um, I think in some ways is what inhibits our expansion. Um, not that they're, like you talked about the liturgy earlier, and certainly I'm, I'm as much there with you, if not more there with you in terms of like, to have an identity, you have to have an identity. And if it isn't what mm -hmm. you do when you get together, then what on earth is it? Right. Um, yep. <laughs> so, so, so I, I get that, but there's also this edge where, um, so how are you going to talk to this person who knows nothing about who and why and what you are and what you're doing and what kind of value do they have to you and to the family when they walk into the door? Um, are they uh, a part of the conversation? Um, are they uh, heard and seen as valuable? Um, or is it, please be like us so that you can join us? And I, I think specifically of uh, a local congregation here in Rockford, not my own, although formerly I was a pastor of it, um, and uh, where they, they very verbally will exhort their desire to reach the neighborhood. I mean, that's, you know, we are going to reach the neighborhood. And the neighborhood looks nothing like them, acts nothing like them, is transient and a bunch of other things. Um, and there's not a lot of reaching really going on. Uh, mm -hmm. What there is is a lot of hoping that the neighborhood will reach them. But they're not changing. And so, again, how does I, I think this does connect to what you were just talking about, the, the natural tendency to... Uh, resist immigration is something that if you're going to uh, conquer, you must at least have a way to assimilate. 
And uh, I don't know if that's a good thing to end on, but why don't you try? You have to be able to adapt, not only in order to to be understood, but you have you have to allow people's lives to be what they are. So if they are relatively transient, then you have to make provision for that that isn't usually available in a congregation which usually fails to communicate with any of the congregations around it, let alone in you know the next city this person's going to be living in or the next part of town this person's going to be living in. So that's an example where you have to understand that that life has its own daily life has its own logic for different people. And you cannot utterly change that, certainly not overnight. If you try to accommodate it, you will probably be a lot more successful than if you don't. So I don't really think coincidentally, the the tribes that get pushed to Oklahoma by the federal government, when it's still Indian territory, are tribes that are going to adopt Christianity in a big way, along with adapting a white pattern of agricultural life, that whites were relatively unsuccessful, certainly for a very long time, with tribes that wanted to remain on the move, especially in the West, because they understood Christianity and settling down in one place as the same thing. So if you can't adapt to the way of life that a, that a person or, or a people are leading, then it's really hard to convey to them the Christian message their their life cannot be utterly changed overnight in every way. Certainly not things as deep as how long do we stay somewhere and what do we do when we're staying there? Yeah, and that's that is something that I think needs to be understood and accepted also by groups that are already coherent, that already exist, because it I think it is one of the signs of love that you do not need to control everything about somebody else. And that what what you know, the, the reason that the Okies face such hostility, and I, I will talk about country music sooner or later. The reason that they faced such hostility was because of how vastly different, also even in just their personal habits, they were from anyone else that was already there. And I think it's natural for human groups when they differ that vastly not to like each other. I, I, I don't say that's good. I just think it's natural. I'm not surprised by it or angry about it when I find it. The question is, if you need to love somebody, do you need them to change altogether overnight to be like you? So whether you're talking about Christianity or someone already in a community with you, a group with you, does that person need to become like you in order to remain there or to remain with you? You mentioned country music, so I'm just going to say it. You can say we all came from a bunch of monkeys, but you can't say I ain't country. (laughs) <laughs> you listen to a brief history of power in order to find us, or you wouldn't be here.